Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hello, Chris. Good to talk again. Hope you had a good Easter and a good long weekend. The IMF spring meeting starting in Washington, D.C. yesterday. So we're in for a few interesting days. The International Monetary Fund has just published its latest global economic forecast. So I think that warrants quite a bit of discussion today because a lot of strong messages in there. One of the chapters in that contains some interest rate projections from the IMF, which I found very, very interesting and a big call from the IMF, really. We can talk about that. Mick Clifford, a columnist in the Irish Examiner, ran a piece at the weekend about the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process and the role of Sinn Féin. That article attracted an amazing level of vitriol on social media. He was really, really attacked over expressing views that I certainly would regard as pretty normal. Maybe it's just because it's confirmation bias on my part. But anyway, we'll get to that. But starting off with the IMF's latest global economic forecast, we, at the end of last year, were starting to become more upbeat about the global economy. And when we came into January, we started to see that more upbeat tone being reflected in the narrative and also in the forecasts that were actually coming out. And we made a big deal about the fact that when the IMF last forecast in January, um, it was the first time in five forecasts that it actually revised growth in an upward direction for 2023. And it went from 27 to 2.9%. And symbolically, that seemed to be very important because, as I say, it broke a significant trend of downward revisions from the IMF. Well, today, 
the IMF has come out with its latest forecast. It's basically saying that that sense of optimism and the possibility of a soft landing that the IMF was talking about in January is now fading. A soft landing would basically describe an environment where inflation comes down steadily and growth remains pretty steady during that process. It's really attributing its pretty, I think, bleak assessment of the global economy, although that bleakness isn't quite reflected in the actual forecast numbers that the IMF published. But that pretty bleak assessment is on the back of stubbornly high inflation and financial sector turmoil. And of course, as we expected, this financial market volatility, bank collapses in four cases that we've seen over recent weeks, were always bound to, um, I think, darken the economic outlook from any forecaster's perspective. They describe the environment as being one where inflation is proving sticky, where labour markets are proving tight. It says quite clearly that the risks to economic growth are firmly to the downside and that the chances of a hard landing for the global economy have risen sharply. Um, A number of factors that drive that. One is that government debt levels are high, so that does limit the ability of governments, at least in the IMF's viewpoint. It limits uh, the ability of governments to pull the fiscal levers to try and provide support to economies struggling. And secondly, it talks about the ongoing war in Ukraine and global geopolitical tensions, which are very high. Wouldn't disagree with that. And it also alludes to the interest rates increases that we've seen over the last 12 months. So those are all factors at play at at the moment. Um, It is forecasting global growth of 2.8% for this year. Uh, That is a revision downwards from 2.9% in January. And to be honest, given the, uh, the sort of negative tone contained in the forecast, I would have expected a more significant downward revision. And then they're looking at 3% growth five years hence, and that would represent the lowest medium term forecast in decades. So it's a pretty bleak commentary. Um, putting it mildly, uh, but as I say, not quite reflecting in very negative numbers. Yeah, it's curious, that contradiction, if you like, almost contradiction that you identify there, which is that the narrative, the verbals, and I've, I've read as much of this report as I can since it was released earlier today, is definitely downbeat. Um, that's point number one. Point number two is that unusually for the IMF, they don't talk about, sorry to, to pun, but they don't talk about the other hand which is not this podcast, but is the other side of the view, which is that risks to a central forecast are usually, if not symmetrical, they are at least two-sided, that there are upside risks as well as downside risks to most forecasts, but not this one. I haven't found any upside risks uh, to mention in any of the narrative, which I think makes your point um, very strongly, actually, that the numbers don't seem to reflect the narrative. All of the risks they say quite clearly, quite explicitly, are on the downside for the reasons that you you suggest. Financial fragility seems to be the one thing that has spooked them since their last forecast, which has caused them to nudge the numbers down very, very marginally. That optimism that you spoke about earlier on the year has clearly dissipated. No more upward revisions. But it's financial fragility. It's Credit Suisse and those two US banks that has spooked them. And I think it spooked a lot of people. And the thing that they're worried about, 
But the thing that they don't know how to quantify is the extent to which we are now going to get either a credit crunch, a good old-fashioned recession on the bank on the back of restricted bank lending. Because what will happen as a result of Credit Suisse and SVB is that banks everywhere are going to rein in, pull back from lending. We just don't know. We don't know. The IMF doesn't know just how much lending is going to be pulled back. If it's a bit, then as the IMF says, it's going to do the work of the central banks for them. This credit tightening will have exactly the same effects as interest rate rises. So in an ideal scenario, the credit tightening that they're clearly worried about will mean that we don't have to get too many more, if any, interest rate rises. But they don't know how much credit tightening is coming. And if it's an awful lot, that could, in extremis, be a credit crisis, a credit crunch with shades of 2007, 2008, albeit for different reasons. So I think they're putting their hands up and saying, quite honestly, we don't know, which just does have refreshing honesty, but it, it does speak to these new fragilities that have really happened since they last spoke only two months ago. So I think it's all down to what's going to be happening in the banking world over the next few months. And that's something that we need to keep a very, very close eye on. And we're going to get some very early indications of this later on this week going into next as something called earnings season starts in the United States. And two things are certainly worth watching very closely there. First, in aggregate, it's expected to be a pretty lousy earnings profits reporting season for the first quarter of 2023 for US companies. And in particular, everybody's attention is going to be focused on the banks. What are they going to be saying about their own earnings? And what are they going to be saying about the sector generally? Will we can see more hints of this credit crunch that the IMF and indeed many of us are worried about? So it, it is. It, <laughs> one of the things about the forecasting game, Jim, is that everybody always says around every forecasting exercise that's ever been done in the history of humanity is that things are particularly uncertain at the moment. And guess what I'm about to say? Things yes. are particularly squared on steroids uncertain at the moment. Um, but it certainly feels that way. That time-honored cliche certainly feels appropriate. It feels apposite at the present time. I, I, I can't remember when it's been quite so difficult. And it's because there is a view that there's a credit crunch coming, but we just don't know whether it's just going to be a little one, which helps actually stop interest rates going up, or whether it's going to be a big one and actually causes interest rates ultimately to fall. I agree with you about um, forecasting. We always say um, this is an incredibly uncertain time. Um, and I guess that's true. But I do sense that at the moment we are in a really higher level of uncertainty, given the sort of legacy effect of a couple of years of COVID, given the effect of the Ukraine war over the last 13 months or 14 months, um, which unfortunately is ongoing, given the magnitude of the interest rate tightening that we've seen over a very short period of time. So, and then of course, um, that giving rise to all sorts of unforeseen consequences like the um, banks that have got into difficulty that you've mentioned. Uh, there's a, a couple of things that strike me about the forecast, ap apart from the very negative narrative not really being consistent with the downward revision to growth numbers. Um, and uh, as I said there, they're forecasting 
2.8% growth in the global economy, which is just uh, down from 2.9% and is actually higher in, in January and is actually higher than what the IMF was predicting um, last October, November. So it's not a dramatic uh, revision. However, for the advanced economies, this is where the real pain is being felt in terms of growth. Um, 1.3% growth in the so-called advanced economies this year, 1.4% next year. And they're saying that if these banking fragilities start to become more serious, that growth in the advanced world could easily fall to 1% or lower. A couple of other things that stand out from my perspective. One is that, you know, inflation at elevated levels this year uh, to fall sharply everywhere next year. But the thing I think that I find most perplexing, and, you know, we have discussed this a lot over the last couple of years, and that is the performance of labor markets and the unemployment forecasts. For example, in the euro area, Growth of 0.8% is expected this year and just 1.4% next year. But yet, unemployment in 22, 23, and 2024 is forecast to average 6.8%. Likewise, in the United States, 3.6% average unemployment this year, 3.8% next year, 4.9% in 2024. So a modest uptick in unemployment there, but nothing as dramatic as the sort of very negative narrative that the IMF provides us with today. So I think all of that is is a, a little bit confusing. Um, and closer to home for you, Chris, um, and I guess this is what's going to hit the headlines in the UK media um, this afternoon and tomorrow, uh, the UK economy forecast to contract by 0.3% this year and to grow by just 1% next year. So a pretty negative prognosis for the UK economy. Yeah, that's right, Jim. And I know that you sometimes have a gentle pop at me for being quite so negative about things UK these days. And I, I certainly take that criticism on board. One must not, one must be very careful about falling into a rabbit hole of pessimism. But as you say, it is one of the few economies that it is forecasting outright recession this year, albeit very mild. I think it's about minus 03 of a percent for this year, which is in forecasting terms within the rounding error of, of you know, uh, reasonable confidence intervals. So yeah, it's got a minor sign in front of it, but it could easily be zero. But it's not a good look for the UK um, when everywhere else I think with the potential exception of Germany, that too is expected to be slightly negative this year. It means that the UK will still continue to struggle and that the economic problems that a cake that doesn't grow, that, that throws up economic issues, but it also throws up social and political ones as well that we've spoken about many times. And no doubt I will speak about again. But Jim, there was also a, another very interesting chapter in the world economy, which was about in the World Economic Outlook which is the multiple hundred pages thing that they've produced today on interest rates. And I think that was as interesting and probably more significant than their short-term economic forecasts because they are saying quite explicitly that they believe that pre-pandemic levels of interest rates, which seem a long, long time ago now, which were zero and negative at times, uh, are broadly speaking going to return. Did I read that right? You did, Chris. Um, the exact comment was that recent increases in real interest rates are likely to prove temporary. This isn't a sort of a, this piece, this chapter isn't really 
a short-term call on economics, inflation, interest rates. It's more of a long-term structural study that it has conducted. The basic premise is that since the mid-1980s, real interest rates across all maturities, that is short and long-term interest rates, have been in decline. Okay, and that that reflects a decline in the natural interest rate. And the natural interest rate is the, the real interest rate that would keep inflation at target levels and an economy operating at full employment. So basically saying that since the mid-80s, this real natural interest rate has been in consistent decline. And it, it, it outlines a number of factors driving that. One is um, what they call global forces. You know, we've seen a lot of money flowing from the advanced world into the developing world and the ability of the of the developing world to absorb that sort of money and invest in infrastructure and so on is limited. So a lot of that money has found its way back into government bond markets in advanced economies pushing long-term interest rates down. Secondly, it talks about total factor productivity growth. Uh, that is basically the output you get from um, the utilization of the four factors of production, land, labor, capital, and enterprise. And then the third piece is a demographic piece, you know, with changing global demographics that puts downward pressure on real interest rates. So, that that is the sort of thesis and basically saying that this downward trend has been in train since the mid 1980s and that we're seeing what we're seeing at the moment has is is just a little bit of a blip and that this downward trend will resume you know once central banks get inflation back under control and they're basically saying that you know once inflation is brought back under control and this is consistent with its inflation forecast for 24 and 25 that central banks in the advanced economies at least are likely to start easing monetary policy again and bring real interest rates back to their pre-pandemic levels so that is an incredibly big call from the International Monetary Fund at a time like this. And, and, and I go back to the very negative tone of the overall report. You know, just, I, I meant to say earlier, actually, that despite that very negative tone and all of the risk to growth being on the downside, it was advising central banks to keep its monetary policy as tight as possible. And secondly, advising governments to maintain very tight control over fiscal policy, particularly public expenditure. So there's, there's a lot of contradictions going on here. In a nutshell, I think the IMF is probably as confused as the rest of us about what the next couple of years might look like. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I can't remember the number of decades I've been stuck with the label Economist, Jim. It must be at least four, if not nearly five now. And uh, I sometimes think, well, I often think these days that I've really got two stock answers to every economic question that I'm asked. One is, I don't know. And the other slightly more sophisticated answer is, it all depends. Um, and after that, I ain't got very much. And interest rates are a classic example of what I'm talking about here. The downward trend in real interest rates, and we talk about real interest rates because they are the most important variable out there. They, they determine everything. If you're wondering what, if our audience is wondering why we're going on about these things, your mortgage, your house value, your, the, your share portfolio, the value of your car, the value of your wine collection, if you're lucky enough to have one, all depends on real interest rates, particularly longer term ones, what we call bond deals. This is They are just so important. They've actually been falling for 800 years. We've got data that long on government borrowing costs going back to 1200 and something, I think it is. They have been in a long run downward trend. And to the extent that we know anything, the latest, as, you, as the IMF has said, as you just commented, the latest upward movement in real interest rates, is it looks like a blip in a long run downward trend. And the IMF is saying essentially that this downward trend will eventually reassert itself because the forces over centuries that have been driving these real interest rates down haven't gone away. And that presupposes we know what those forces are. And I think we do know something about some of them, but we don't know everything about all of them. One of the things that worries me about what's happened in the last couple of decades, rather than the last few centuries, which is a bit esoteric, even by my standards, is that the thing that uh, I think has been very important in driving long-term interest rates down has been uh, globalization. And I remember a time, you and I, Jim, were in the Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C., long, long time ago. And we were asking uh, somebody that was reasonably important what he thought about a billion workers being dropped into the global economy, willing to work for 50 cents to a dollar an hour. What consequences that would have for all sorts of things, not just interest rates. And that was a long time ago. And of course, we were talking about China's accession to essentially entry into the world economy. A lot of these globalization forces that I think produced the great moderation, as it's called, where we had steady growth and low inflation and low interest rates for a long period of time, they're going into reverse. And I worry about whether or not the IMF has taken that into account. But anyway, if the IMF is right, and you are willing to look through all this short-term nonsense about whether inflation is going to come down quickly or slowly, but willing to believe that it's going to come down, you'd actually take this forecast for lower interest rates and just start buying up real assets now. This is the time to be adding to your equities, adding to your portfolio of property, buying up that art, buying up that real estate, because all of the things that it, that happened to those things when interest rates were at zero or negative was that they all went up in value. And I think, why would you expect anything different this time? Do you think now is the time to start actually becoming optimistic about real asset values being driven up again by lower interest rates? Or are we getting ahead of ourselves? Okay, Chris, before I answer that question and uh, you know qualify what the IMF said, I just want to ask you a question. Maybe this is a stupid question. But I mean, real interest rates are in negative territory at the moment. Well, it depends how you measure them, doesn't it? And this is this. Well, it's, it's it's the nominal interest rate adjusted for inflation. Well, no, that's that's how some of us conventionally measure um, real interest rates. But the proper textbook definition is the nominal interest rate minus expected inflation, not actual. And we use actual inflation 
as a proxy for expected inflation because expected inflation is so hard to measure. The real interest rates on index-linked bonds, for example, in the United States is positive. Not very positive, but it is positive. But if you, if you want to use actual inflation as your, your proxy for expected inflation, you're right. But I don't think that um, it's right to do that at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I told you I was going to ask you a stupid question. The IMF does couch this interest rate prognosis with some caveats. Um, and, and what could cause this forecast to prove wrong? Well, number one, they're saying that government fiscal support that's been so evident uh, during COVID and the Ukraine war particularly may prove very difficult to withdraw, leading to higher public debt, putting upper pressure on um bond yields secondly okay a, a key a key part of their view on interest rates coming down again has got to do with the transition to um a cleaner economy in a budget neutral way but they they would then argue that if governments actually change tack and start to seriously subsidize the development of alternative energy through subsidies and so on that that could push um deficit financing into negative territory, push public debt up, uh, leading to higher bond yields. And the third piece is the one you mentioned there. They basically would be concerned that the forces of deglobalization could actually intensify, resulting in the fragmentation of trade and financial markets. Um, and that would bring the natural um, interest rate up in advanced economies. So they, they certainly have couched this view with some significant caveats. Uh, but I, I nevertheless, I, I think it's, to me, it is the most interesting thing contained in this report today because, you know, I was asked the question at a presentation a couple of weeks ago, when or if interest rates are going to start coming down again. And I sort of said, I wouldn't worry about that for the, or think about that for the moment. You know, we're still in a rising interest rate environment. But when you have the IMF coming out with this sort of analysis, um, it does suggest that we could see it sooner rather than later. And, and if this proves correct, um, you're very definitely correct. Now would be the time to pile into assets. With one um, caveat, I think. That, one course, caveat. You, yes. Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's at least one. I'm sure you could think of several more. But the one I would think of is that, yes, when these interest rates start to fall, if they start to fall in the way the IMF says they're going to, and if they go all the way back to pre-pandemic levels, which the IMF says they're going to, that's massive. That's enormous for any investor in any asset, including your house. Um, but between now and then, anything could happen, including a, a big fall in things like house prices, in things like stock markets. So, so you, you might get better buying opportunities. So this is not an investment tipping website. So please do not take this as financial advice. But if you thought this was going to happen, if you thought the IMF was right, you would certainly be getting ready to buy, wouldn't you? And you would be ignoring the earlier pessimism in the IMF report and be thinking, okay, that's very pessimistic short term. But for investment purposes, it's massively bullish long term. When do I start buying? It's just a question of when, not if. Yeah, and I suspect now is not the time. Uh, Chris, moving away from the IMF, I mentioned in my introduction uh, the article that a journalist, Mick Clifford, wrote in the the Irish Examiner over the weekend. Um, and he was basically saying that rewriting of history is an insult to the dead. 
And he asked the question, you know, what was the previous 30 years of killing in aid of up to the signing of the Good Friday Agreement? You know, while we're here celebrating 25 years of the Good Friday or the Belfast Agreement, it is only proper to acknowledge the reasons why 3,700 people had to die during the so-called Troubles. And he goes on to quote Jerry Adams, who described the IRA activities, the Provo activities during those years as the response to the British policies in Northern Ireland. And Michelle O'Neill, the leader of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, said that there was no alternative to the violence. So he then went on to say that basically, in his view, what the Provos and Sinn Féin were trying to achieve was to violently impose a 32-county socialist republic um, on the island of Ireland. And that, um, you know, he goes on to talk about other people who were important in this whole peace process, um, John Hume, um, Seamus Mallon of the SDLP, for example. He goes back to talk about the Sunningdale Agreement in 1974, which I think John Hume, or Seamus Mallon. Hume, it was Seamus Mallon, yeah. described it as Sunningdale for slow learners, the Good Friday Agreement. You know, so that that is the basis of what um, Michael Clifford was arguing. But um, agree or disagree, the amount of vitriol was extraordinary that he got over the weekend on social yeah. media. I read Clifford's article and I thought it was a reasonable article, very well summarised by yourself there. It was the vitriol that accompanied it on social media in particular that um, took me aback, actually. I'm, a, I'm aware of the divisions. I'm aware of the ancient hatreds. I'm aware of 800 years of history. I'm acutely conscious of the significance of 1798 and a lot of other dates in Irish history. But it was the response of so many people to, to Clifford on social media, and it was all one way, actually. Um, well, 99% of it. And I'm going to exaggerate and paraphrase slightly, but only slightly, just to make the point about page after page after page of comments on things like Twitter. And one typical comment was that my great-great-grandmother uh, uh, used to know somebody whose second cousin was burnt out several times by loyalists. And that gave the IRA the right to kill babies and children on the streets of England. As I say, I exaggerate slightly, but only slightly. There were people uh, justifying the, the IRA killing that uh, Clifford was asking, what was it all about? And it, things like being burnt out of your house was used as an example of why the IRA was justified in doing what it was doing. And you mentioned John Hume. John Hume said very memorably, I mean, what do I know about this? But um, John Hume, a nationalist, uh, said that there was no civil right violated or social injustice present in Northern Ireland at any time during the Troubles that justified the taking of a human life. And that would be the the, the line I would take, uh, or certainly believe I would take it from John Hume. Um, I certainly wouldn't take it from those social media comments, which were so, so vile and so extreme. And from people who clearly, at least from the tone of what they were saying, were not around when any of these things happened because it was always the things that they were citing were hearsay as much as anything else. But the other strain of vitriol that, that was equally um, scary for me was how much they reserved for you Southerners, 
the the extent to which they really really detested you because you didn't help them during the troubles that you didn't vote for Sinn Fein during the troubles and that you didn't support the armed struggle that that the level of hatred that existed now I know it was Twitter and I know we have to aim off from that Twitter only ever has a minority of people it's often filled with bile and vitriol about all sorts of things try being a female political journalist these days and see how much violent bile and vitriol that you actually get so you do have to seasonally adjust and I think we're all used to the idea that there are still divisions there are still ancient memories and that um, you know that that Northern Ireland needs more peace walls now than it ever did during the during the troubles, all those sorts of things. But it was, for me anyway, scary. Um, and that if the, the, these comments were written, they were obviously all anonymous. Nobody uses their real names. Were they the Shinobots that we hear so much about, the army of uh, Twitterati, the social media commentators that Sinn Féin deploys during these sorts of times? I don't know. But if it was the Shinobots, Jim, and they are, and if they are reflective of a strain of thinking within that party, then um, given that you're about to vote Sinn Féin into government, frankly, don't be surprised by what happens after that. Is that too extreme of you? No, I have to say, um, reading those comments, and I, 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 I would agree with you, Chris, in the sense that you shouldn't get too hung up on what being said on social media, but um, it it did indicate a huge level of vitriol um, towards the journalists themselves, but also towards people who live in the South. And um, it reminded me of uh, a friend of mine who played hurling for Waterford telling me some years ago that um, playing a game in Antrim one day for, it was 60 minutes at that stage, but for 60 minutes, all he got in his ear was, you fiend bastard, every couple of seconds, you know, trying to rile him. But it, it, it just shows how difficult it is going to be to achieve a united and peaceful and harmonious island. Mick Clifford finishes up with the comment that when a united Ireland does happen, it'll be despite not because of the long campaign of killing, which was devoid of any morality. And I have to say that would be my perspective on it. Um, But it, it is really, really worrying that if these people who are making these comments are going to be the ones that will be um, ruling the country after the next election. Um, God help us would be my view. Jim, let's wrap it there on that sober note. Um, I certainly expect um, that will elicit one or two comments. We've managed to avoid social media trolls um, in the few years that we've been running this thing. Um, We got one recently, actually, our very first one on our site and um, people can go and have a look at what this particular person was saying again full of a bit of vitriol and bile not not directed towards us for our political views but more because we're apparently right-wing fascistic economists um which which is news to me and i'm sure it's news to you but uh, maybe uh, maybe we'll pick that up next time mate. attending all those dinner parties in south county dublin dorky dinner parties mm. haven't been to one of those for many decades i Cheers. wouldn't even know how to get there chris Cheers, buddy. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it.
Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 